Today's main topic centers around the question, can exercise make you smarter? I think most of you know that physical exercise can make you healthier. You can build muscle and improve organ function, including your heart, circulatory system, and your cardiovascular system. Physical exercise may help you avoid lots of aches, pains, diseases later in life, but can physical exercise actually make you smarter? Mental exercise, such as learning, can make you smarter. In whatever way you use your brain, you'll build new neural connections that will strengthen each time you use those new pathways. Learning will make you smarter. But can physical exercise make you smarter? Researchers believe it can. To begin with, exercise stimulates the body's nervous system, causing it to release chemicals such as serotonin, dopamine, and endorphins that make us feel happy and calm. Endorphins have also been shown to improve memory. After exercise, memory improves and your ability to prioritize what is most important and what is less important improves, allowing you to block out distractions and better concentrate on an assignment. The release of these chemicals helps to explain why many people feel more focused and are aware after they exercise. If you feel better, you can think more clearly and concentrate better. Your body simply functions at a higher level after exercising. With regular exercise and an improved cardiovascular system, you can bring blood and oxygen more efficiently to your brain. You may also improve the amount of time you can stay focused on studying and recover faster. In fact, it is believed that the growth of new brain cells and new neural connections can be stimulated by exercise as well. As your brain grows these new cells and connections, The areas associated with memory and learning grow and overall brain function improves. So how much exercise do you need to keep your brain functioning at its best? At a minimum, it's probably 15 to 20 minutes three times per week. However, 30 to 60 minutes four to five days per week is probably better. Running may be better than lifting weights, but any exercise is better than none. To help us understand why exercise may make us smarter, I've invited my friend and colleague, Amy Wagner, to talk to us today. She's an associate teaching professor in the, in the Department of Biological Sciences at Bowling Green State University and one of our pre-health advisors. She teaches courses in anatomy and physiology and coordinates our anatomy labs. Welcome to the Teaching and Learning Professor, where you will find interviews of college faculty, staff, administrators, students, and alumni every week. Topics cover all aspects of formal and informal learning in higher education. The goal of this podcast is to help faculty understand the best ways to teach and for students to understand the best ways to learn. Your host is a teaching professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Bowling Green State University. He's been faculty and the director of the BGSU Marine Lab since 1999. Now on to the show with your host, Dr. Matthew L. Parton. All right, so we are here with Amy Wagner, and Amy, I guess, uh, would you like to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your education and background? Um, well, my name is Amy Wagner, as you said. I am an associate professor here at BGSU. This is my 10th year here, although I have been teaching biology for nearly 25 years now. Um, I've been at various different universities. Um, my undergraduate studies were, of course, biology. And then I went on to get my master's degree in molecular biology. But in about 20 years ago, I got really interested in health and fitness. And I got in, you know, a bunch of certifications, became a trainer, became a fitness instructor. Um, 
And along that same line, I got really interested into anatomy and physiology. So about 15 years ago, I started teaching anatomy and physiology and I've been teaching it ever since. Okay. So you've done a lot of studying along the way. So what, you know, your professionals preparation to in, in your background in biology, as well as for uh, becoming a professional trainer, how do you prefer to study and learn? How do I prefer to study and learn? Um, I guess I'm a visual person. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm good with, with reading and stuff like that, but I do notice that if I'm trying to, to follow things, I, I will take notes as I'm following through while I'm reading. And if at all applicable and I can find anything that I can look at then online to, to just visually see it, to, that kind of helps cement it for me. I mean, I know everybody else is, uh, you know, learns by different processes. That just happens to be my, my main mode. Okay, so you like to see things done so people can demonstrate something and then you can duplicate that. And that's how you feel that is the best way for you to learn. For me, yeah. I mean, in the classroom, a lot of times, if I find that we're doing uh, a difficult topic, um, we have, I have split projectors behind me so that I can, you know, have the words up there or my PowerPoint presentation up there, but then I'll be drawing for them. Because like I said, sometimes just seeing it in a picture, uh, in different colors, as you add the various different, like, um, you know, nuances to the, to the image, you know, I add the different, you know, whatever I'm talking about, I add them one at a time. I, I think that sometimes that helps the students if they can see, you know, we're talking about uh, muscle contraction or something like that. And I add step one and then I add step two and then I add step three. Um, so, you know, just kind of another way of teaching, at least for me. For myself, I, th I think that back when I was in college as an undergraduate, I, I'm sure that the, the, my, favorite, my favorite way to learn was to sit in the back of the lecture hall and just take notes, tell me what I need to know, and then I'll show up and I'll just take the exam and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do well. You know, mm -hmm. I, I preferred to read and, and to look over my notes. And, you know, I really didn't like to participate when teachers would invite me to do some sort of a group activity. It's like, oh, no, I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to learn, you know, tell me what to know and I'll know it. Yeah. You know, but that's not necessarily the best way to learn. Okay, it was. I, I would think it was certainly my favorite way to learn, and I guess I'm wondering, uh, do you feel that students get more out of doing some sort of like physical activity in a classroom over over just listening to what you have to say? Um, I think a common misconception, at least for anatomy and physiology, is it's just memorization. Let's just go in, listen to her. I'm just going to go home and I'm going to memorize the facts and I'm going to spit them out. And I'm going to do well on the tests. And that's where a lot of students end up failing because it's not memorization. It's not just sit back and you tell me what little facts I need to know. You have to understand the process, the physiology behind it. If I were to change one thing in that system, how would that affect other systems in your body or everything else in your body? And sometimes I can't give them every tiny little thing that for them to memorize. If you understand the concept and you understand the system and you understand how it works, sometimes you can work that out on your own. And so, um, no, I, I think that for me at least, uh, if I feel like they're not understanding it, if they're, they're looking up there and they're listening to me and they're getting words and they're getting terms, but I need them to understand it, then sometimes we may do some weird little skit or some little handout or we may draw something or whatever I can to try and relate it to something so they can visually see this and understand, 
oh, okay, I get that. I understand how that's working now. I guess I, I, I can kind of equate studying biology to studying a foreign language. So, you know, I, I studied Spanish in high school and college, and I, I'm not going to pretend that I know Spanish or I'm fluent in Spanish, but I took a lot of Spanish. And, you know, I guess it, the way I learned Spanish is I would make flashcards and I would memorize what all of the words meant. But putting them together in a coherent sentence was a whole different thing. <laughs> exactly. Or, and I will tell the students that studying science is like studying or learning a foreign language. And what a lot of them will do, and a big mistake that I think a lot of students make, is they'll see a word and they don't know how to pronounce it. So they don't even sound it out. They just look at it and they're like, I'll remember it. I'll remember that word. And then the test comes and there are three words and there are multiple choice or three answers and under the multiple choice question. And they all start with the first three letters. They never sounded the word out. So they can't differentiate any of those three words from each other and figure out which one actually fits. But tell my students, okay, it's not an oral class. It's not going to be an oral exam. Sound the word out. Put it in your head. Give yourself some sort of a name to that word, that's the only way you're going to remember when it comes time for that test. And that's, I think, a big problem because like a lot of them haven't taken Latin or Greek and they don't know how to pronounce these words and they're afraid of them. And so I think that they, they have issues with remembering a lot of them because they don't sound them out or they don't come up with a, an actual pronunciation. Yeah, any w- whether it's, it's the correct pronunciation or not, it's, it's as long as they're sounding exactly. it out, it gives them something to help remember. Right. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did you choose to become a professor? Um, honestly, I think it kind of chose me <laughs> in grad school. It was not, I, you know, it was not my original plan, but when I was in grad school, uh, I was a teaching assistant and I taught a lot of labs and I liked it and the students liked me and I got requested a lot by the professors to teach for them. And it just kind of kept transitioning from that. I mean, I, when I left and we... Uh, originally moved away. Um, there was a community college by us that was looking for teachers. And I said, well, I'll go in and see. And I applied and they gave me a full schedule full of teaching right away. And from that point on, it just seemed like I just continued to keep teaching all the time um, from one university to another. And people would get my names. And if a job opened up, somebody would contact me and say, hey, can you come teach for us? And I'm okay. So, so you just sort of fell yeah, into I it. Yeah, I just really just <laughs> fell into it. I think sometimes what you're good at or what you're meant to be, it kind of finds you. And that was an example of it for me, at least. And so what, what classes do you currently teach? Right now, I'm just doing anatomy and physiology. But prior to that, I almost always taught general biology, both for majors and non-majors. So those introductory biology classes that you see everybody taking. We have both anatomy and physiology one and two are combined anatomy and physiology classes. Oh, okay, so okay. anatomy and physiology one deals with um, the integumentary system, both the anatomy and the physiology of it. Um, then it deals with bones and joints and muscles. And then we go into the nervous system and neural tissue. Um, and that's, I teach that one. And then anatomy and physiology two um, deals with the rest of your systems that you think of. So, okay, okay. And I, yes, I do teach that as well as I coordinate all the labs for all of those. Okay, all yeah. right. So you teach both of those. Courses. I teach both of those. Right. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite class? I guess I kind of like A&P one, the first one better because with the, the amount of background that I have in exercise and exercise science, 
and stuff like that with it being muscles and joints and mm-hmm. bones. It tends to, I can bring a little bit more um, of the stuff from my life and from my experiences into that. So I would say that's probably my favorite, but I very much enjoy the information in AMP2 as well because every disorder you're going to deal with throughout your life is covered in every one of those organ systems. So, right. you know, it's great to have a, a thorough understanding of what's going on inside your body. The two courses that you teach, they're primarily students who are majoring in... I have a wide array of students. I have everybody that's going into any health profession. So whether it's any type of medical field or physical therapy, occupational therapy, they want to become a physician's assistant. I have those that are studying exercise science. I have those that are studying different speech pathology, even healthcare administration. So it's what we call a service course. It caters to a wide array of students, not all of them having a good science background. But you don't teach any non-major courses. So students who are majoring in philosophy? Uh, Not this semester, but yes, I have a lot of experience teaching our biology for non-majors, biology 1040. Yeah, I've taught that a lot. How do those classes differ? Like, did you teach two non-majors in a different way than you taught two students who are majoring in a life science discipline? No, I think it's more just the the content, how in-depth you go. I still use the same techniques. Mm -hmm. I still use the same strategy. I'm really, really big on bringing in practical application and life experience. So for almost every topic that I cover in any one of those classes, I'm going to give you a story, a story of this person that has this disorder or this disease, or in your house, this is how why if I'm teaching non-majors and we're talking about, you know, chemistry or something, this is why you put jet dry in your dry, in your washing machine or your dishwasher and why it works. So I, you know, I try to, to relate them as much as I can to life. The only difference is the amount of information that I give in them. And the you know the amount of time that I spend on various topics. What about case studies? Do you ever get into case studies with your courses? I do case studies. I do them probably a little bit more in the the higher level courses than the low level than the lower level courses. Okay. So, and you coordinate a number of graduate students, correct? I do with the labs. How? Mm-hmm. Let's hear about that. <laughs> <laughs> that can be a difficult challenge. This is not a medical institute, so we don't generally pull in grad students that have a great anatomy and physiology background or that are interested in that or are going on in that area. So it's a struggle sometimes to get students that have a good enough background to be able to teach the students or grad students that have a good enough background. And so I spend a lot of time catching my grad students up before I can actually have them walk into the class. And then, of course, I've got the learning curve. I've got a huge turnover Every two years, I'll get like a whole new set of grad students. Oh, yeah. And I got to start all over again. And then, the you know, the students are complaining because they're not learning great from the, the, the grad student. But you have to remember, everybody has to start somewhere and has to learn how to teach. And a lot of them, this is their first or their second semester. So not only are you teaching them how to teach, you're teaching them some of the background information that they need to use to present. I am. The labs. Yes. I, I put together for them, Not I don't want to say their lectures, but I have their labs completely put together for them every single week so that all they have to do is add their little bit of lecture material that they want to start it with. So they've got all of that groundwork done already. And then I run a session at the beginning of every week to show them, this is how I would teach it. This is how you do it. This is the information so that I, they feel as, as prepared as I can make them feel. You meet with the graduate students once a week. 
I do most of the time. And then you guys set up a lab every, is it is, every week you have to set up a whole new lab? It depends on the topic. If it's a topic that's going to take two or three weeks, like for example, bones or muscles, that generally takes two or three weeks. So we just introduce different ones or more each week. Okay. So we don't overwhelm them with all the bones or muscles in one week. If it's one of the, we're going through a system and then yeah, it's a different system every week. And what if a student misses a lab? How do they make that up? They can, (laughs) unfortunately. So we have to stress, you have to go to your labs. We have full labs here. We have 24 seats in the lab. That's it. And usually they're full. Our anatomy and physiology classes are, are all full. So we don't have a spot for a student to attend another lab. And we don't allow them to attend other labs unless they have some sort of uh, pre-approval from me because maybe they're in a school-sanctioned event. If I allowed anybody to go to any lab, then chances are there would be one TA that everybody would like, and they would all try to jump into that lab, and we can't accommodate that. And so you guys have this policy because you're just mean people? No, we have this policy because it's the only way you can run classes that have 250 students in them and get everybody into the lab every week and get the right, you know, get experience with everything that we want them to have experience with. And unfortunately for them, we don't have enough hands to accommodate students that just don't show up. All right, makes sense. What's your favorite part about teaching? I think the students. Every now and then when you see one of them light up and say, hey, I get that, or that's why that's happening. It slows down a little bit by the end of the semester, but when you teach anatomy and physiology, you cover a lot of topics that are going to pertain to their body, their lives. And they'll realize as you're going through various different topics, hey, that's why this is happening inside me. Or, hey, that's why so-and-so did this. And then they'll come down at the end of class and they all want to tell you about it or they want to ask you questions about it. To just see them get involved or excited in something like that, I think is, is really probably the thing that I like the most. What's the most difficult part of teaching? <laughs> <laughs> the most difficult part of teaching my class, at least the anatomy and physiology, is the, the very, very distinctly different levels students come in at. I have students that have very little science background at all, and I have students that have a very strong science background. And the information that we cover is is pretty complex. And it's difficult sometimes to reach all of them. Sometimes you feel like you're failing some, and sometimes you feel like you're making others bored. You have to realize we have a very limited amount of time. I have, you know, in one class, I have 10 chapters to cover in pretty much 15 weeks plus You have to take and add in the fact that I'm going to have exams throughout there. So I only have a limited number of hours to cover all of that material. And as much as I would love to do more worksheets and spend more time going over stuff, there's times when I just have to say, I got to move on, you know, if we're going to get through this stuff. Being able to differentiate and allow the, the, the students who have a little more deficits to make up and trying to get, you know, not outpace them so that they can stay on track with the course, but you don't want the students that are super advanced to be just bored out of their mind because they already know all of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's very difficult to, to be that happy medium and to hit every student and to not feel like you're failing the ones that are far behind or the ones that are way ahead. You're not giving them what they need. So how do you help some of the students that are falling behind or seem to be struggling in your classes? We have, I have at least for my class, I have a supplemental instructor for each of the classes. They are students that have already taken the class and gotten an A. And then what they do is they will sit in on the class again throughout the semester so they know exactly where I'm at every lecture. 
and then they run three times a week open review sessions. And not, I don't want to say they're tutoring because they're not. What they're doing is they're running, they're doing little worksheets or little games, things like that to allow the students to practice and to test their knowledge, to see how much they're understanding what, what's being discussed in the class. So I have that, and I also have a lot of office hours and a lot of an open, or I have a, an open door policy so that the students come in, and I really help a lot of students one-on-one when I can. Yeah, so Amy's office is directly across from mine, so she's got a lot of students in there uh, pretty frequently. Yeah, I do. And if I, you know, I try the best I can to, to, to keep up with them when they come and ask for help as much as I can, you know. So you teach a lot of classes. You're obviously very busy with that. What else do you do here besides teach classes? I am the advisor for all of our pre-health professions. So anybody in the biology department that's going into any health field with the exception of veterinary medicine, I'm their advisor. So I have 210 advisees that I deal with. I work with recruitment. So I, I have to show up at all of our what do we call it? Preview days. Preview days. And I, I have, day, and, yeah. Yeah, and anytime a new potential student is looking at the university or one of our, our sports department, you know, our uh, various different sports is trying to recruit somebody, um, then I have to meet with those students and, and talk with them. Um, I'm also very um, involved with something called the pre-professional office here. So we have an office that accommodates and helps all of these students that are trying to get into pre-professional programs when they go to apply with them. So I work with them and we meet a lot to, you know, I meet with them a lot. Um, Currently I'm helping with a program that's going to um, help new freshmen coming in, maybe get that are struggling or maybe in our slightly lower spectrum of, of ACT achievements or GPA and stuff like that. Maybe get them a little better prepared to start the semester I do a lot of committee work. What committees are you on? Uh, what committees am I on? I am on the curriculum committee, the advising. Ask me again. I can't remember all my committees. <laughs> I'm on this, this pre-professional, um, the pre-professional planning committee. I'm on... Recruitment. Recruitment. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole list. There's a whole, I can't remember. <laughs> you just show up when they tell me. I just show up when they, when they, they tell you. me, yeah. yep. Have a meeting. All right. So you do a lot here besides just teaching classes. Yes, I, I do. That's fair to say. All right. So we're going to move on to our main topic. And the main topic of discussion, the, the big question is, does exercise make you smarter? And so I thought you'd be perfect Absolutely. to ask, ask this because <laughs> of your background with physical fitness and training and anatomy and physiology. So, so you're going to say just straight out of the gate, yes. You it does. It Absolutely. Yep, it has been shown that, um, of course, exercise helps to secrete more of those feel-good neurotransmitters, such as serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. And the higher levels of those we have found will also, are, is also associated with increased attention and um, cognitive abilities. It has been shown, literally, that if you exercise and you have a higher level of serotonin and dopamine, for at least two hours afterwards, your ability to pay attention and retain information that you, and, then, and understand the information that you're getting will be increased. There's a short-term effect right there. In the long-term effect, the exercise also increases your perfusion of blood to the brain. So you've got increased blood heading up to the brain, supplying more oxygen and nutrients to the neurons there so that they can do their job better. 
And it also causes the release of what we call growth factors. In a long-term span, what it does is, is that increased circulation and the release of those growth factors actually causes increase in brain mass. And it's particularly two areas of the brain, in an area called the prefrontal cortex, which is right here behind your forehead, and in an area called the, on both sides called the medial temporal lobe. If you know anything about your prefrontal cortex, it is the part of the brain that does what we call, it's the higher seat of learning. It's going to be the part of the brain that's going to help you with complex learning and analysis, with focus and attention, with staying on task, foresight, planning. It also does judgment, personality. It makes us human. It makes us who we are. If you have an increase in brain mass within that area, more neurons, more brain cells, then it would go to, to, to reason that you should be able to focus longer. You should be able to, to work out more complex problems, pay attention better. All of those things are going to be improved. In the medial temporal lobe, you have something called the hippocampus on both sides. And the hippocampus is responsible for converting short-term memory to long-term memory. And again, if you have an increased mass in those areas, you're going to be able to convert more information more efficiently. What will happen is in the long run, you are going to be able to learn. There's so many benefits from exercise. We've also found that things that normally like stress and anxiety, they can decrease cognitive abilities. Exercise helps to diminish those. The increased dopamine, sore, you know, serotonin helps to give you that, that little bit of extra energy, that, that perk to, you know, to decrease all of those things. So, yes, absolutely. And not just that, if you think of exercise at increasing the brain mass in those two areas, there is research that shows that those are the two areas that you see the most neurodegeneration when you talk about things like dementia, Huntington's disease, and stuff like that. It's not that this is going to prevent those from happening, but if you've got more mass in those areas, it's going to take longer for the neurodegeneration to occur in those areas. Okay, it can yeah, slow yeah. the progression of the disease. So, um, yeah. And, I mean, I even use this. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you have days where you're just feeling, it, feeling down or you're feeling run down or something like that, and you get up, and you go take a brisk walk, or you just get out of the house, or you go exercise, you know, go for a short, a short little jog, you're going to notice you feel better, you know, and if you feel better, you're going to be able to pay attention more, and, and you're going to, you know, be able to focus longer. I mean, I would tell my students, you know, you have a hard class, let's say you got a calculus class in the morning, and you're really, really struggling with it. Instead of rolling out of bed and just throwing on your clothes and heading into the calc class, why not get up a little bit earlier Go and just exercise. Put in a 20, 30-minute little jog or run or even a brisk walk. You're going to find that that increase in the release of those neurotransmitters will actually make it so you can focus a little bit better in that class. And then how often should, should we be exercising? There's a lot of research on this. What they found is that optimally, really, you need maybe about 120 minutes a week. So you can break it down. One professor at Harvard found that they had their test subjects just walk viscally, you know, vigorously twice a week for an hour each. And at the end of six, to, six months to a year, they, they saw an increase in brain mass in those areas. Others have done other types of aerobic activity for shorter durations, maybe 30 minutes at a time, three or four times a week. And again, saw the same effects. Get up at least three or four times a week or even 30 minutes or so 
and you will see a benefit. And it doesn't it. have to be like super aggressive, rigorous. No. For the short-term effects, any exercise will release serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine. If you want to get up and exercise in the morning before a class or before you want to sit down and study at night just to, to help you focus, pay attention better during those times, you can do anything. You can do yoga. You can do an aerobic activity. You can do brisk walking. You can even do weightlifting. If you want to increase brain mass, though, in the long run, they have found that you need to have an aerobic activity, Okay, something so, cardi- that uses more of your cardiovascular system. So running may be a little better than lifting weights. During, for those, yes. But it doesn't even have to be running. Brisk walk, anything that gets your heart rate up. It doesn't even have to be exercise. You can get up and go 30 minutes and clean your house vigorously. Run up and down the steps, grabbing the laundry, take it downstairs, mop the floor, vacuum, and carry the vacuum up and down the steps. Just that, you know, increasing that cardiovascular activity for 30 minutes can work. Okay. What about sleep? We do know that if you want to take and convert short-term memory to long-term memory, that you need to do that, that that occurs during those first couple hours of your deepest sleep during that REM period. Obviously, we know that if you're going to be physically active, you're going to wear yourself out. You know, you're going to be tired at night. Your chances of you sleeping a little bit better are going to be increased, as well as it decreases your levels of anxiety. So you may be calmer so that you can go to sleep. They said, you can do yoga. And yoga is another one that will help to decrease anxiety and, and depression increase, you know, levels of serotonin and dopamine. And those may also help you to sleep better. So yes, there's definitely a correlation between getting up and moving and sleeping better. If you do lots of exercise, you're likely to sleep better. And does sleep actually help your mental functioning? Well, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, when we regenerate anything, most of that happens while you're sleeping. Okay. okay, so when your body's repairing damage, regenerating cells, when it's converting memories and things like that, that all happens when you're sleeping. So yeah, you need a good night's sleep to be able to function optimally. Okay, so how much sleep? I think I get about five hours most nights. <laughs> you get about five hours. <laughs> that, well, you know, I mean, like- everybody knows. I think they did research one time where they asked some of the most ex- successful people in the world, what is your, um, what's your schedule like? What, what do you do? And I think so, I, somewhere I read that some of the most successful people in the world said that I have an 888 schedule. I do eight hours of work, eight hours for me time. That means exercising and, you know, doing whatever else, you, spending time with your family and eight hours of sleep. So probably optimally, I would say eight hours of sleep. All right. Sounds like good <laughs> advice. Any other recommendations about learning for our students? Obviously, get your exercise, get up, take care of yourself, but also breaking it down into increments. I mean, anybody can tell you that you can't study for five hours straight and think you're going to retain everything that you just you know, studied. If you break it down into smaller increments, you will find that you can focus better and you'll retain the information better if you do it more frequently instead of one big exposure for five hours where you're cramming or six hours the night before. If you broke it down into 30 minutes, 40 minutes, several times a week, and repeatedly kept going over the same information over and over again, you'll retain it better. I I think you'll do better on the exams. You will be less stressed. You'll walk into class. I I tell my students all the time, if you look over the material, even for 30 minutes at the end of the day that I've given it to you, the next time you come in, 
you're going to know, you're going to remember what we talked about. You're going to remember the, the things we went over. And so when I start adding on to that, you won't be lost. More of what I add on in the next class will make sense to you. If you could just do that, in, instead of waiting for the last minute to do everything, you know, if you've had a lecturer that's been giving you material for three or four weeks, and then they're giving you an exam, and you sit down to study for the exam two nights before, do you really think you're going to remember what they were talking about two or three weeks ago when they were covering it? Probably not. So you may learn the information wrong, or you may try and, you know, think you're learning it right. If you s slowly go through the stuff through those three or four weeks, you won't have as much you have to cram at the end, and you will have learned it properly because you'll have just fresh had in the morning when you're reviewing it that night or two days later when you're going through it. But I think that's the biggest thing. I think those are, that's what the most successful students do. They study more frequently in smaller increments. What about any recommendations for teaching, about teaching for new faculty? <laughs> say, let's say I'm a brand new professor. I'm trying to figure out how am I going to write my lectures? What, should I, what sort of activities should I be incorporating into my lectures? You know, go easy on yourself. Unfortunately, I think the first time anybody teaches anything, it's a difficult task to do. And remember, too much detail is not always good. All right, especially sometimes I'll go in and I'll see somebody who has a PowerPoint presentation up there, and they've got so much written on that PowerPoint <laughs> that you couldn't possibly make out what all is on that PowerPoint. Yeah, I think I did that early on. I, I mean, I still have some like that, but I'll point with my little laser pointer to the things that I want them to like so they can focus in on the things that I want them to know. There are concepts that are complex to even you, and you realize that it took you a while to get them down. It's going to take them even longer because they probably don't have the background you have. Maybe that's a time when you give the, them the information and then stop and maybe have an exercise or something to test, okay, are they getting this before I move on? I think breaking complex concepts down really helps the students like, so that you're not just, okay, I'm going to jump right in, I'm going to teach you all this complex thing, and I'm not going to stop anywhere in there to see if you're getting it before I move on to the next step. What about our administrators? What kind of advice or suggestions do you have for administrators that would make your job easier and more enjoyable? Again, the time constraint is a difficult one. It is very difficult to get through the amount of material that we have to get through in the very, very short amounts of time that we have. I don't really, I don't know that I have a lot myself. I, I seem to have a good, I, give, I have a good support system with our administrators, I'll be honest. They, they check with me when they want to open up class sizes. Like I, you know, I just recently spoke with them because they want to open up 100 more seats in a class. And obviously I'm like, I, I can't do that. We have to be realistic. They've been very good to me in that, in that regard. Thanks for listening to The Teaching and Learning Professor with Dr. Matthew L. Parton. If you like our show and want to know more, check out his webpage at blogs.bgsu.edu slash teachingandlearningprofessor. And please leave a review on iTunes, TuneIn, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you retrieve your podcasts.